Uh, a very warm, warm welcome uh, to this event in the, um, in the LSE's Future of Europe lecture series, which is organized jointly with FT Business, Financial Times Business, which is the, um, the supporter and sponsor of this series of lectures on the future of Europe. Now, we're very much looking forward uh, to this lecture, first and foremost uh, because of the quality of our speaker, of our guest speaker, whom I'm looking forward to introducing in a moment. Uh, but secondly, um, to remedy perhaps a slightly embarrassing and unjustifiable uh, absence of Dutch speakers in the recent past in our, in our, in our speaker program. And I don't want to go into long sort of self-flagellation uh, about this, and, but I'm sure you'll understand why I should sound defensive about this omission. Uh, this, after all, is a country which has filled our news pages, particularly in the last few years, uh, to a very great extent, partly because it was responsible, as you all know, uh, with another well-known European country uh, for consigning the European Constitution to history, and partly, though, because it has had to wrestle very publicly uh, and sometimes poignantly uh, with questions of immigration and social change and national identity, questions which are confronting most EU countries. But, of course, the Netherlands has uh, many other claims to our attention, uh, as you all know very well. Uh, they're claims which are born of a of a culture and history which draw on many of the strands which make up Europe at the same time as having an extraordinarily strong um, uh, and proud identity uh, of their own. And of course those strands include a strong commitment to European integration combined with a robust Atlanticism, a commitment to free trade and, and the very best of the bourgeois values in that most positive sense, at the same time combined with a high degree of social protection and solidarity so brilliantly described by the historian Simon Sharma uh, in his book on 17th century Holland, The Embarrassment of Riches. Uh, of course, a commitment to civil liberties, which has attracted writers and scholars and refugees from persecution since the 16th century, and, which, uh, and a culture which remains, even to this day, remarkably non-judgmental. And above all, perhaps, uh, and in keeping with the theme of, uh, of this evening's uh, lecture, uh, a readiness to paint its interests and its values um, onto, a, onto a global canvas, where necessary, even through the deployment of force. But anyway, let me come to the main action. Um, we were delighted uh, when Franz Timmermans accepted our, our invitation, um, partly because it hails the most interesting and relevant uh, portfolio for our Future of Europe series, that of Minister of European Affairs, and also because his reputation as a lively and stimulating and uh, opinionated speaker uh, precedes him. So I was not altogether surprised uh, when a Dutch colleague of mine, who's somewhere here in the, in the audience, I see Krista, yes, uh, said that he has his own blog. Uh, but I was surprised and a bit frustrated when she told me that his blog was only in Dutch. Uh, and I thought this was very odd, after all, um, it's one of the disarming things about the Netherlands that everybody there seems to speak better English uh, than oneself. So why doesn't Mr. Timmermans have a bilingual blog? Not least being such a well-known figure on the European scene. So I'm afraid the upshot of that is I'm unable to give you a, a taster of some of his most, uh, his, uh, his most candid and uh, controversial shorts, but thoughts, but I'm sure he's about to do that anyway. But just to complete this uh, by way of mini-biography, Franz Timmermans has been a member of the Netherlands House of Representatives uh, since 1998. He was the Netherlands, and he was the Netherlands Parliament um, representative on the European Convention. Uh, before that, he served in the diplomatic service, 
uh, with postings in, in The Hague, as you see the listing, which doesn't sound terribly adventurous, uh, but also in Moscow. <laughs> also in Moscow, working amongst others with uh, EU Commissioner Hans van den Broek and the High Commissioner on National Minorities at the OSCE, uh, Max um, uh, von der Stoll. Now, notwithstanding the, uh, the uh, rather playful, uh, playful jeu d'esprit suggested in the first part of the uh, title uh, of his lecture, uh, I think we're in for something actually quite uh, ambitious and ch challenging, maybe even existential, I don't know. In all events, we are very much looking forward to what Minister Timmermans has to say. Minister Timmermans, over, over to you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much um, for this kind introduction. And um, I would, you know, if you're interested in my blog, why don't you learn Dutch? It's such an interesting language. Right. Um, Johnny Good. Can I get back? And it's, it's not all that difficult, actually. And um, uh, we have many things in common. You know, the oldest expression in the Dutch language, which was written down on a piece of paper by probably an English monk or uh, a Flemish monk who had come to England to do some writing. He, he tried out his pen on a piece of paper. And he wrote several times, Probatio Penne, Probatio Penne, in Latin. And then he wrote, uh, which was a line of poetry in Latin, and translated it into something that looked like Dutch. And this, for, 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 for decades, has been the first, first sentence in Dutch language. But um, now scholars assume that it might even be English, or what preceded English. So, uh, you know, the, the sources of our, uh, of our languages have uh, much, much in common, and um, so, so does our, our history. Um, um, you know, uh, the ambassador of Malbec was just telling me that um, uh, an artifact has been found in the Dutch dunes uh, not so long ago, which, showed, which was made in the British Isles um, three and a half thousand years ago, uh, and already then apparently we had ties and people were going back and forth. Um, when I insist on this, it's, it's also to, to stress the point that if you look at um, uh, European history, history of European integration, um, the Dutch are generally referred to as, as very pro-European integrationist uh, uh, nation, etc. But, but, but those who know the history of the Dutch position in Europe slightly better know that this is not uh, the entire picture. Um, uh, the, the Dutch have always taken from the outset a very... Uh, pragmatic approach to European integration. Uh, one of our strategic goals uh, from the outset was to involve the UK in European cooperation. Mm -hmm. So, um, um, you know, uh, not many are grateful for that in the rest of Europe, but um, uh, we, did, we did succeed in, in bringing that about. Um, we have uh, no tradition of, uh, through the ages, of close involvement in continental politics. We rather uh, trying to keep out of uh, continental politics and, and look for the high seas in our colonies in the east and, and the west for some time until, of course, um, the Brits kicks us out of some of our colonies. Um, um, but, um, and and uh, because we were never that much engaged in European uh, uh, political affairs, we um, got hurt quite often because others would collide against us and we would not be able to do anything about it. So the temptation was always to look for a neutralist position. And I think this is sort of in the, in the, in the spirit of the, of the nation, to, to look for neutrality as, as, a, as a possibility 
to act and trade uh, globally um, without having to be involved in the murky business of politics um, on the European scale. Um, that is why the rule of law is so important for the Dutch. International law has always been so important for the Dutch. International law sort of tries to not discriminate along the lines of power and sort of establishes the rules along which everybody can operate. International law is still a very basic um, notion in Dutch political life. The UK has, has been far more intensively involved in continental politics than the Netherlands, which is, if you look at our geographical position, a bit strange, but if you take into account the, the, um, the ambition uh, of the UK to be a European power and a global power, uh, the UK has never had any um, reservations in projecting power, uh, simply because it had the means to do so. Um, um, so this is the background with which we now stand together in Europe. Um, I know that um, for a short period of time we were seen as, as very federalist. I even acknowledge that in the Dutch public debate we tend to believe that image, that we were federalist and suddenly we woke up and understood that it was all a big mistake and um, now we're pragmatists, etc. But this is not, you know, it's not taking into account the, the realities of our uh, history and of our commitment to European cooperation, which was always founded on pragmatism. Um, and, of course, the, the wish to prevent being um, isolated once again, the experience we had in 1940. Um, neutralism did not protect us against aggression. And therefore, after, after the Second World War, being embedded in transatlantic and European cooperation was the best uh, solution for that problem. When you talk about um, um, the crisis or the change or the struggle we're having with our position in Europe now. I think this is intimately linked with um, the end of the Cold War and um, uh, the driving force of the European divide for keeping the Netherlands in European and transatlantic cooperation has, has fallen away and therefore, like all other European nations, we're looking for a new position in Europe and then if the general sentiment is in the Netherlands, as in many countries, because of enlargement, because of all the change to globalization, we are no longer in control of what happens in our own country. We're no longer in control of our position in Europe because there's so many other players. Then almost instinctively the reaction is to look for your past and to look for what uh, apparently worked in the past. And I would say that this um, reflex you see in political uh, and also intellectual circles in the Netherlands of rejection, rejection of European cooperation, rejection of other forms of integration, has to do with this um, inherent feeling that perhaps neutralism is a good uh, way out of, of this, this murky business of European politics. Um, don't underestimate this, and I want to stress this point because uh, somehow uh, we're the, probably the only continental nation in Europe where uh, the intellectual debate is dominated by Eurosceptics. Uh, in, in other countries you would see Eurosceptics in different walks of life, but not in the intellectual circles. In the Netherlands, this is different. It, is, it has become uh, intellectually attractive. It has become uh, um, uh, fashionable to be uh, anti-European or Eurosceptical. And of course, everybody immediately then says, of course, I'm not against Europe. I'm against this Europe, but we know exactly what is meant. Um, I thought that the, the title of my lecture would be, would be self-evident, but I, I was told that many, many of the
people attending these lectures are not actually British. Um, and and uh, this, this is, uh, for those of you who might not know, Monty Python, um, Life of Brian. Um, and um, and um, just to, to make sure that, that, that I'm fully understood, um, Commander Texas, who really wants to overthrow Roman rule, um, says uh, to uh, uh, Francis, who is his uh, interlocutor at that point, um, all right, but apart from sanitation, medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, roads, the freshwater system, and public health, what have the Romans ever done for us? Um, and then the answer uh, given by Francis is, brought peace. Um, of course, then Commander Cessus says, peace? Oh, peace. Oh, shut up. Um, this is sort of the attitude, not just of the Brits, but of probably most Europeans who have been long-standing members of the EU. Um, this is what brought about this, 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 this sort of qui de coeur by, by, by uh, German filmmaker Wim Wenders when he said, how come? Why is it that so many who are outside the EU long for this EU, have this yearning of being members of the EU, whereas those who are in the EU are sort of fed up with the EU and see it as a nuisance and don't see its merits. Now, in general, the answer to that question in the Netherlands will be given very easily and with, with some sarcasm and saying, yes, of course, because they want our money. They want our money, and that's why they want to be members. They want the structural funds. Um, uh, of course, this is, in this time and age, uh, something that uh, others might uh, say uh, as well, also given the fact that these structural funds are indeed going to uh, new member states. Um, but um, it is more than that. It is also expressing a, a, a measure of cynicism uh, that uh, needs to be countered, I think, at the political level, at the intellectual level, in the business community. Um, and it brings me to a fundamental point I want to make tonight. Europe, the European project, has forgotten to stand up for itself, to defend itself. And we've come into a situation where Europe is always on the defensive. And however outrageous the claims might be in the sun or elsewhere of Europe taking over, Europe doing away with the nation state, etc. And I, I would argue that most people reading those claims do, don't really believe them. But these outrageous claims always automatically put Europeans on the defensive and never lead to the possibility of stating a case, case for Europe. What happens is that when people say, yes, they want this for the structural funds, and then, of course, I will have to go and explain, which is an argument which is much more difficult, that structural reform in those countries leads, leads to um, uh, uh, sometimes double-digit growth figures, which benefits our economy, which uh, benefits the European economy, etc., etc. I would have lost most people who wanted to hear my arguments. This is much more complicated than simply saying that they want our money. Um, Jokingly now, uh, many Dutch people going abroad um, and seeing new buildings financed uh, by the EU say to each other, no, that's my taxpayer's money. Uh, 
and this, this idea that um, the common good works out perfectly uh, nicely for us indeed because we're in a, a country based on, on exports is not something that um, creates people's enthusiasm. You can repeat time and again that 70, 80% of our exports, etc., etc., are in the EU and that thanks to the euro we have a stable monetary uh, system, etc., etc. These are things we repeat all the time and people don't even receive them anymore. We're sending, but nobody is listening. Um, so that brings me to um, the issue of distinguishing facts from fantasies, myths and realities. Um, I've, for a long time, I've thought that um, as long as we would just give the facts, myths would go away by themselves. But um, myths um, are created not because the facts don't add up, but because trust in the project is diminished or even lost. Um, it is a well-known psychological fact that if you're afraid of something or if you distrust something, you will look for proof of your fear or distrust everywhere, and you will see the proof everywhere. And this is what's happened to the European project in the last couple of years. In the Netherlands, less so in the UK, but in the Netherlands, um, the enlargement in 2004 is seen as something that perhaps was morally right or necessary, perhaps was supported by the elites, but by and large was bad for the country, was bad for the population. This is something that needs to be contradicted very strongly. And you have to use moral imperatives to do this, not just facts. The moral imperative being that the greatest achievement in my lifetime, I was born in 1961, the greatest achievement in my lifetime will be the end of the European divide. Nothing else will happen during my lifetime that I can imagine that is a greater achievement for Europeans as a uh, collective base of uh, shared values. I also think that we need to speak up to point out that there is a convergence in Europe a convergence in terms of values, a convergence in terms of economic priorities. At the end of the Cold War, when um, new democracies emerged and they sought to be members of the European EU family, the assumption was, economic assumption was, that their economic development would be comparable to the American model. They would go for a different type of, uh, of, uh, of uh, market economy than the rest of Europe. They fed up with state intervention, etc., etc. Uh, and the first years of transformation seem to indicate that, that process. But if you look at those countries now, I, I think you see convergence with generally shared values in the EU. The interesting fact will be to see whether this is also the case in the UK. It is the case in Ireland. I'm not sure about the UK. It's up to you to decide this. I'm not sure. But if you see the importance of negotiated agreements between employers and organized um, uh, uh, industry, if you see the importance of having um, uh, safety nets in, uh, when there is an unemployment or illness, if you see the importance of education accessible to everyone regardless of the uh, income levels of, of the parents, if you see uh, the balance that is sought between work 
and um, uh, uh, free time. If you see the balance of the sorts between work and care in the family, this is something that converges on the European level and that distinguishes us from other parts of the world, North America, Asia, and, uh, and uh, elsewhere. Um, uh, the interesting case here is to, to look at, at, at the UK, whether the UK is converging to that model or not. Uh, I think that the judgment on this is still out. Uh, we will have to wait and see. If I look at the ambitions of, of this uh, government, if I look at the points where they concentrate their efforts, I would say, yes, this is also converging to this uh, European model. But there are also strong tendencies in this society that would not that would sort of advocate a more mid-Atlantic approach uh, to uh, social economic uh, uh, structures. Why do we think, do we believe global Europe is important? Global Europe in the sense that was presented by, by uh, Prime Minister Brown and also elaborated upon by David Miliband and, uh, and Jim Murphy in their, in their lectures also here, I believe. Um, I think it is important because it shows an agenda for Europe that is both imperative in economic terms and imperative in political and moral terms. I believe that creating a new balance in the economy between um, insiders and outsiders, between people who take part in the economy and those who are left outside is an imperative for Europe. I believe that it is important within Europe to drive home the point that having less security in your job does not entail having less security that you will be employed. Um, interestingly enough, in, in, in some uh, Scandinavian countries, this is now um, accepted. Denmark is a good example. Where you can see that there people uh, uh, can, can be out of a job easier, but the level of protection is very high and the likelihood of getting a new job is very high as well, so people become more relaxed about the status of their contract. But in most other European countries, this is a far cry from the reality. Uh, and I think this is very important in the Lisbon agenda and in transformation that we make sure that this is more widely understood as the way forward. Um, there is an economist, a very interesting man, I hadn't heard of him before, and I've, I've met him recently. He's, He's Italian, um, Mr. Boeri, I think his name is, who, 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 who calls this um, Europe's um, joyless job miracle. Um, never before in European history were so many jobs created in such a brief period of time than the last 15 years. Never before are there so many opportunities for people to, become, uh, to, to better their own lives and to become engaged in the economic process. Never before has the workplace been such a healthy place. Believe me, I'm a coal miner's grandson. I've seen some unhealthy results of unhealthy uh, blue-collar working places. And still, those people who have to uh, earn their living by working are more unhappy than they were 10 or 15 years ago and yearn for the 70s of the last century where their position is certainly not better than today, but the perception is that it was. Why is this? The only explanation I can find is this inherent feeling of insecurity and this inherent feeling that perhaps their children, they themselves, but especially their children, will be worse off than they are today. 
Uh, you know, I was talking about my grandparents, coal miners. One of the most momentous moments they saw in their lives was their grandson going to university. This was unthinkable. My grandfather, a very intelligent man, had to leave school at 14 or 13 to go and work. And the school teachers came to plead with my great-grandparents, please let him stay, he's intelligent, he can learn, he can be a teacher, he can be a priest, uh, but he can learn. And they said, sorry, we need the income, he has to go into the coal mines, because otherwise we, you know, his, his, his siblings will not have enough to eat. For my grandfather to see that change within a generation is an incredible uh, success. But these are successes of the past that do not convince people who are thinking about the future and thinking that they no longer have this prospect of social um, emancipation, but they have this fear of, of social degradation. I think this is a, an element you see in German society, in French society, in Dutch society. I'm not sure about British society, but I do think um, that elements of this are present in, 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 in uh, uh, blue-collar uh, working environments in, in the UK as well. Now, intermingled with this feeling is the um, struggle with immigration, which did not uh, play a huge role in political life before, but now at this stage has become an element of the political debate and has created more uh, insecurity uh, uh, than before. I think this is much more fundamental for the understanding of why Europe is unpopular than any other explanation we, we can give. Europe has become the symbol not of the possibilities to protect people um, against uh, the negative influences of globalization, not of the possibility to, to use the enormous potential of globalization, but simply as an instrument to aggravate the negative sides of globalization, especially working class people. I think this is the fundamental problem we have in uh, the EU of, its, of, of, of trying to convince our population of uh, the possible, uh, uh, the positive effects of European integration. And again, it goes back to the uh, Monty Python uh, quote, people are no longer interested in successes of the past. They would be if they think these can be replicated because they have a positive outlook on their future. But if the success of the past is nothing more than rubbing the nose in the fact that they've achieved something that they now stand to lose, um, it creates um, a problem also for uh, the European project. And I believe that in some areas identified uh, by Gordon Brown, we can actually achieve progress that will be seen and identified uh, by uh, our, our voters, our uh, constituents as a positive element, as a strong contribution uh, uh, of Europe. Um, I was in, in Washington uh, yesterday um, to talk about uh, renewable energy, uh, and I also had the opportunity to talk to some people in, in the administration, also some people who are um, supporting various campaigns in the presidential election. And I was struck by the fact that all of them were actually very interested in what does Europe think about this? Um, and the concept of addressing Europe automatically is interesting. They wouldn't have done that 10 years ago. Um, 
And I, I fully understand that when they say Europe, they perhaps probably mean London and Berlin and Paris. They don't mean all of us. But they have this concept of Europe as a global player that has a meaning for certain issues that need to be tackled. And Europe is sometimes unaware of this potential for global leadership. And I want to highlight the issue of climate change. I was at a conference on renewable energy. Everyone is looking for Europe's leadership in this issue. Everyone wants Europe to set the pace. The Americans will join us if we set the pace. And if the Americans join us in that, I am convinced that others will follow China, India, Brazil, and others. So we have a huge opportunity in fighting climate change that is supported by our population that nobody doubts, neither in the UK nor in the Netherlands, that Europe should act upon, that we should use in the next couple of years to bring back uh, confidence that Europe can actually achieve um, uh, something meaningful uh, for its um, uh, population. In your introduction, um, uh, when you said, when you, when you introduced my country, um, you clearly mentioned the, the struggle we're having with, with identity. And I think this is something that I need to highlight here today because it's not just a Dutch problem, it's something that is um, of importance all across Europe. Perhaps not today in all, all states, but if you look at Spain, for instance, Spanish authorities, Spanish politicians know exactly that the problems we have now with the second and third generation uh, migrants will come to Spain in 20, 30 years' time, just as much as they came to us, if they are not addressed in, uh, in the right way. Um, I believe that also here, um, uh, European society is quickly changing. Uh, migration is of a different nature. Uh, two generations ago, people would come here or to the Netherlands and stay for longer periods of time, never travel back. And the assumption in our society was these are guests and they will leave again once their jobs are finished. But they stayed. Now, people travel back and forth easily every week, two weeks, every month. They have dual lives, dual identities, multiple possibilities of creating networks. And somehow there is an allergic reaction to that in parts of the population who believe that they stand to lose because of that. And this is something Europe would need to address, look at, to see diasporas as, a, as an opportunity and not as a problem, to see the new networks as something that you should foster and, 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 and see as a possibility to create a more pan-European cooperation and not uh, as a problem. The only issue is then that, of course, governments want, want to be involved. And this is an area where governments should be very... Um, should restrain themselves from wanting to influence developments and should simply um, provide opportunities for those people who are um, using the opportunities uh, for themselves. Another issue which is of very great importance for both our countries and on which we should stand uh, together is the fight against this knee-jerk reaction to certain global issues. Knee-jerk reaction being the temptation of protectionism. All across Europe, I see tendencies um, to try and use protectionist measures to counter 
things like um, uh, sovereign wealth funds or to counter um, the uh, free movement of capital or to look for um, uh, certain commercial uh, uh, interests or to look for um, cooperation in the energy field. And I believe Brits and the Dutch have a very, very important responsibility in maintaining Europe on the path of free trade. Um, this is very important because if we don't succeed in that area, our economies will suffer and people will lose their jobs. In that context, another myth needs to be looked at very carefully and needs to be countered. The myth that jobs, because of European integration, are leaving the country and going elsewhere. This is simply not supported by economic facts. Yes, of course, individual jobs, individual positions are um, uh, moving elsewhere. But in general, the, uh, this does not lead to a diminishing of jobs. On the contrary, it not, does not lead to diminishing of economic growth. On the contrary. Now, everybody who's in politics will argue immediately. That's very nice of you to say it. But Jim, in his factory in Warsaw, uh, will not be convinced by your argument if he's losing his job because his factory is moving to Romania. Um, that's true. It's very true. This is not a zero-sum game. For some people, this is very difficult. But it's also part of politics to explain that sometimes things are difficult for, for the individual but are necessary to, um, uh, to improve the position of society as a whole. And at the same time, there, again, the agendas of the British and Dutch government coincide. We need to provide people with more skills. We need to invest more in providing the possibility for people to improve their skills, to make sure that they can have better jobs, higher quality jobs in the future. And do not accept the argument that people are unable to acquire more skills. Everyone is able to acquire more skills as long as the skills are fitted to the individual's uh, potential. And there again, I think the agendas established by the Dutch and the UK government are, um, um, are in alignment. Much to my surprise, uh, lately we've seen in uh, the, UK, the, the British press a very positive attitude towards the um, influence of the size of the EU, 500 million consumers, the EU establishes the rules that are followed by others, the EU is now the leading economy in terms of consumer protection, product safety, um, uh, food safety, etc. And I think this again is one of the big successes of enlargement. The rest of the world is following the example. We set the pace, we determine the rules, and the rest of the world, United States, Asian countries, will have to um, uh, follow. My final remark, and I'm looking forward to answering your questions. My final remark would be about the necessity, uh, and there perhaps our views diverge between Brits and Dutch. The necessity to have more than just an instrumentalist Europe. Um, it is difficult to convince the Dutch audience because they are very pragmatic about European cooperation. But you need to have this cooperation supported by a certain vision of society which goes beyond the practical measures and the practical results in the short term. We need 
to have the courage to project um, our ideals and how society should be structured and to say and to argue that European cooperation is the instrument, instrument par excellence to make this happen. We need to convince our people that there is huge potential to create a better future and not just a huge potential to try and prevent uh, a worse uh, future. Um, one of your professors, Professor Gray, has written a book which um, I sit up all night to read it. Uh, Could make you quite depressed. Black, black Mass. Um, I don't share all his views. Um, I don't share his... Um, on, on the surface, you would, you would think he's very pessimistic, but I've given it a lot of thought. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, some of our worst pessimists are, in fact, um, um, closet optimists who are afraid to express their opinion uh, in all openness because they're afraid to be right. Anyway, his thought that we should stop thinking about the possibility to create, uh, to mold the world in our image, to create a better world, uh, but that we should concentrate on steps forward, on improving the world we have, while accepting that the world is the way it is. I think this is perhaps the most important lesson we should learn if we evaluate the 20th century. Um, the mistakes that were made by extremist ideologies in the 20th century are now repeated by fundamentalism in the 21st century. This idea that paradise on earth is possible as long as you want uh, to create it and that the position of individuals who refuse to see your uh, uh, view of the world is not important and can be discarded in the most literal sense of the world, word uh, should be countered by a European vision that is based on the fundamental pr uh, principle that you are willing to reassess your opinions that you are willing to look at the world through somebody else's eyes, that you are willing to accept that differences are a source of force and not a source of uh, weakness. If this is the lesson Europe can teach the rest of the world, if this is the lesson where, where we were able to incorporate ourselves in our day-to-day -day business, I think um, our Europe has a great future. Thank you very much. Thank you, Minister, for, by what was any standards, by any standards, a, a very uh, rich and thoughtful speech. We seem to marry, as you describe it, traditional Dutch pragmatism uh, with a realistic form of idealism, perhaps. Um, and I'm sure your point about the end about, um, about uh, going beyond pure down-to-earth instrumentalism to something a bit more inspiring uh, uh, will have a a resonance amongst this month's more uh, I gather, I imagine, a fairly pro-European audience. Um, um, we, our usual format, as is known to all of you, uh, is, to, um, is to invite questions, and the Minister has said that he's keen to take them. Um, as per usual format, uh, therefore, if you could just uh, uh, indicate that you'd like to speak, uh, wait for the microphone to be brought around, please 
one question and not smuggling in a second question and um, ideally say who you are and who you're, where you're from as well. Uh, so who'd like to kick off with the question? Gentleman right at the back has some very keen do you want to class? Do you, sorry, if you just forgive me one minute. Do you want to class for the minute? Would you like to take them one by one? Perhaps we'll take the three at uh, a time. Would you like to come? In general, I would say, I mean, a lot of entities in the community still ask about these people being uninformed and, and not being aware of their, their goals. It's very different to say. So there's a similarity. Could you put um, it in the question? question Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'd like to we'll take a couple more and perhaps cluster them in groups of three. Gentlemen there, is there anyone on that side of the room? Okay. Uh, my name is John Preston, European Movement and Federal Union. Um, the word is communication. And progressively, uh, the news and feature reports from the BBC increasingly involve American people to interview from American universities or American specialists. And diminishingly, the same information could have been got from a continental university. And I'm wondering whether you could indicate ways in which the European Union could better communicate with practical examples. The BBC isn't all bad. I've seen programs on the open university at night French solving the regional problem by developing uh, transport methods and investment methods and if it was the Vosges Valley which had a high degree of unemployment and so on, <coughs> so on and so forth. Now the way they structured that and developed that is a good example but I was probably one of about three people who couldn't sleep if you saw the program on television then. So the question is how better can we get for example the BBC but also for the EU to give the BBC the idea that that's where some very good examples can be shown by comparison education, transport, regional development, happiness. We don't need to teach that on the continent. We don't hear it. Thanks very much. Um, gentleman over there. Philippe Pop, and I'm in charge of the Euclid, the European Network of Third Sector Leaders. In 19, uh, 1870, when the Italian Kingdom was created, the Prime Minister at the time, Cavour, made a famous comment. Uh, Italy has been, uh, yes, has just been made, now we have to make comments. I would like to apply this to Europe, because I think we have 
done a lot about European institutions, the one the market, but what about the Europeans, especially mm -hmm. the European civil society? I don't think that the European Commission will be able to create Europeans with a bureaucratic approach. This is definitely a mission for politics, for political forces, and so I think for governments. Mm -hmm. What's your view about this? Thank you. Screen. Looking forward to answering the question. Mr. Vestoff, did I understand your name correctly? Um, absolutely. Uh, there is this, this level of insecurity in Dutch society, and all things collude. Uh, Anti-Europeanism, measures of xenophobia, something completely new in the Dutch context, a mild form of nationalism. We've never seen that before. No. Our Dutch chauvinism was to be proud of the fact that we were not chauvinists is also a form of chauvinism, but, um, but now it's become, uh, uh, there is this nationalist flavor. And, and, and I see this, all of this, um, uh, on the negative side, it is, it is insecurity and searching for a new position. On the positive side, it is reasserting one's own identity, and I think there was a necessity to do this also in, in, in the Dutch context. So it's not all bad, there's some good elements of this too. But the, the fundamental problem you're addressing has to do with the way our, our society was structured before the mid-70s and the 70s. In Dutch society, the structure was along very rigid religious or political lines. And within certain groups, be they Catholics or Protestants or Socialists or Liberals, within the group, you had sort of a micro-society because everything happened within the group. Everything. All the life was structured within the group. I remember I was, I think, eight or nine years old uh, when my grandmother said, Oh, that's funny. Look at those people walking down the street. They're Protestants. I mean, look. Are they nice? Yeah, they're pretty nice people. Two arms, two legs. They walk like us. Well, I was surprised. We never, we were Catholics. We never met Protestants. Now, of course you... <laughs> but the, the, the issue here is that uh, the point I want to make is that of course we live together in a country and you needed to, to regulate things and to arrange things etc this was done by the leaders of the, of the groups only by the leaders of the groups now when these groups or pillars as we call them in Dutch uh, disintegrated society did not have mechanisms to solve conflict and to come to agreement with differences. So the reflex in society was to ignore difference because that had always worked so perfectly well and leave them up to themselves. That's the best way for them within their own group to achieve emancipation. That's what we want. But with modern immigration and with the fact um, and with, with in the situation that groups no longer exist, this doesn't work. And what we call tolerance in fact was neglect, wasn't tolerance. And at some point, of course, this comes to an eruption. And now, uh, with uh, inner cities, in the major cities, 50% of the population, more or less, uh, with uh, origins from outside Europe, uh, these problems have come to a head. And this is a very potent, difficult mix 
because we have no uh, mechanisms in place for a long time to negotiate between groups. And that is the problem in the Netherlands and Dutch society today. And that is why Dutch people get confused if you try to explain the difference between assimilation and integration, which are fundamentally different uh, 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 subjects. That is why we are struggling so much with integration. But at the same time, you know, uh, I want to be an optimist because the fabric of society is strong. Our outlook is strong. Our potential is huge. We only need to see this and to understand this. And we only need leadership, not of politicians alone, leadership in society willing to stand up for this society, willing to stand up for the necessity to bridge gaps and not create even bigger gaps. Um, Mr. Preston, what is such a difficult question? I struggle with this question every day because we have exactly the same problem. How do I get Dutch media interested in uh, subjects having to do with other Europeans? Now, the fallacy in our thinking our institution, I think, in the past, was that as long as we showed more of the European institutions, people would become more pro-European. That is wrong. You, know, you will not convince Europeans with Brussels. You know, in, in Dutch polls consistently show that 72% of the 70-odd percent of the Dutch population support the idea of European cooperation. But nobody likes Brussels. I mean, we're, we're almost British in that sense. Um, so you have to drive home the point of European cooperation um, by showing other Europeans. There is no other way. Uh, and what we try and do is stimulate um, uh, exchanges between uh, uh, broadcasting corporations. What we try and do is point to some interesting developments, etc., etc. But it is extremely difficult. And, you know, British media are, are covering Europe a lot more than Dutch media consistently more. And Dutch media coverage on Europe, this is shown by analysis, has gone down in the last 10 years. Um, European uh, effects of European policies on day-to-day -day lives have gone up and the attention for Europe has gone down. I mean, this, this has to lead to problems. But, but my answer to your question, although I know it's a very weak answer, would be let's try and focus our attention on what other Europeans are doing and also, interestingly, on what other Europeans think about us. It's very interesting. Very interesting. You know, and again, I, I, I found this point again in the U.S. Very senior people in the present administration asking, what do you actually think about us? Uh, the other night at dinner. Last night, actually, at dinner. What do you think about us? What is your opinion of what's happening? How do you see us? And I gave an honest answer, which is perhaps a bit... Uh, confronting for them, but they were listening avidly because they don't know this. And this was such a big surprise to me. And this is also something that happens too much in Europe, that we know so little about each other. Which brings me to the third point. I think there is, if I can be so rude, there is a fallacy in your reasoning to think that Europe, Europe needs European citizens as much as nation-states need national citizens. Um, there is a, a logic in transposing what works on a national level to the European level, but we have to, we have to, um, to get rid of this notion of nation-building via citizenship-building uh, in Europe. 
we will not, there is no such thing as a European citizen that is distinguished from any other citizen. Europeans are citizens of all sorts of member states. What they share is what I, in my view, what I was talking about earlier, the way they want to organize their lives. And there we have so much in common. There are differences all across Europe. There's the Rhineland model, there's the um, uh, corporatist model, there's a Scandinavian model, there's a Polder model, if you want to throw in a Dutch uh, uh, version. But they all come down to the same, to negotiate between parties in society, to look for balance between work and free time, to look for uh, social security when you're unemployed or ill, to look for good uh, old age pensions. Those are the driving forces that create Europeans without them being Europeans. That is the essence of, essence of European citizenship, which is, not, which is in no way a, a competing citizenship with, with national citizenship. We have to get rid of this idea which certainly after the enlargement of 2004 is, is, is totally wrong, this idea that Europe is made at the expense of nations, at the expense of nation-states. On the contrary, Europe needs nation-states, nation-states need Europe. And this is something that we need to explain more clearly because always in the debate, also in the Netherlands, if you talk about Europe, people say, but what about us? What about our identity? People have this idea that Europe is about putting all this, these differences, all these different colors in Europe into one big washing machine, setting it on the highest temperature possible, cooking it into some sort of gray European mass. This is a widespread perception in our population and we need to get that perception out of people's minds. Thank you. Right. Um, Helen Wallace and then Christa van Weibergen and Brendan Donnelly. I hope we can make time for two more rounds, so hopefully we'll bring everyone in. Having all of that, I think you're, as always, a very determined attacker for conditions. But I wonder if you could tell us a little more about what you see the trend line being in the English or Dutch society attitude to homosexuality, and what kind of timescale do you understand very well the size of the transformation you're talking about? And how does that bear on all the issues for Europeans about crossing the border in our Krista. Uh, my name is Krista Kleinberg from the European Institute of Theology. Uh, I was just asking your observation that the European system has been changing very slowly over the last Um, Brendan Donnelly.
Dutch. I'll do the reverse order because this an immediate reaction. Um, I, I said the judgment was out on this. Uh, also because, because I, I'm not well enough informed uh, to, to pass the judgment myself. Nothing would make me happier than to immediately accept uh, your analysis. Um, uh, and I wish, I, I hope it is true. Um, if that is the case, then the long-term trend will also be a convergence to European uh, values strong but, if, but if you say it's already the case uh, I, I gladly accept that but, but, but um, um, I, in, in talking to government officials here, perhaps that is the issue uh, when we talk in Europe um, I don't have that impression that I might be but I hope, uh, well, let's say that you've convinced me for now. <laughs> um, Helen Wallace, um, you are such a true European, it's such a pleasure to see you here. Um, I think the, the trend line in Dutch society is, is, is uh, you know, very difficult question to answer because we're, we're in the midst of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a storm and you never know how the storm will end. I have my moments of, of, of uh, doubt, but I have also many moments of hope. Um, I think the potential in the immigrant community to achieve um, social progression is tremendous. Tremendous. First signs of success in the Turkish community are there. First signs of success with young Moroccan women and girls are there. Um, so we have so much to gain if we only um, avert this tendency of um, looking for polarization as a catharsis. Now, this, this, is, this is actually one of the elements of that society in the last eight years that we because we never spoke to each other and we never addressed issues, we have started to believe that simply by addressing the issue, you solve the issue. Um, and, and, and I think we're slowly waking up to the fact that this does not solve the issue simply by addressing it, making it even stronger, etc. Yes, things needed to be said, 
but we've said things now get over it start solving problems and this is the the phase we're in now and i hope that in the next couple of years we can actually start solving problems that people perceive as problems being solved rather than problems being highlighted again um, the fact of the matter is that honest very honest uh, hard working whatever you want to call it fundamental point here is honest people in what in the UK you would call the lower classes working class people of Dutch white Dutch origin many of them they're not racist they're not xenophobic don't brand them that way they're simply concerned don't brand them as xenophobic or racist they're concerned they truly believe and I know many many of them because they're my constituents they truly believe the country will be taken over by Islam it is a conviction and they say this not out of xenophobia but out of concern we need to take that concern seriously that is part of our society on the other hand so many people in our society hard-working honest people are fed up to have to defend their color and their creed day by day they are simply working and living in the Netherlands contributing paying taxes all the the uh, the standard lines I can give you on this and they don't want to have to defend something that is not part of their lives, radicalism, not part of their beliefs. Uh, uh, this is the situation we're in. One side of the country believing that the country is up for sale to others. Another side of the country, people believing, I live here, I was born here, but they don't want me. And this is the gap we need to bridge, and we need to do it soon. I, I see the point in Britain with, with, with uh, certain communities. From Van Bergen, um, the preemptive strike. Well, I, I tried in, in my lecture to, to, to highlight specifically uh, climate change as a preemptive strike for Europe. I think in, neither in the UK nor in the Netherlands nor anywhere else in Europe people would uh, take issue with the fact that Europe needs to act if we want to be successful uh, on this issue. Uh, we also see the first successes. If we follow through now with the European Council next week and if we actually translate this into national action programs and have results, first results, the Americans will follow, others will follow. I think this is a very topical issue where we can show leadership. I also believe that in international affairs, in international security, in migration, in uh, fighting international crime, there are some very clear deliverables in the medium term that Europe can have, that we can uh, show our people that Europe actually works to solve these problems. Um, uh, and, you know, especially Africa, is, is the most important issue in Latin America. Also migration, development, security. If we can create an atmosphere where people want to stay in Africa, we're all best wrong. Uh, we will not, any fence we build will never be high enough to keep people out of Europe if we don't improve their lives in Africa. Now this basic understanding is something that should be elaborated and, and, and projected on the European scale. I think this is also a very clear um, Europe will be on the defensive for a while. Yes, I think so. But um, uh, I think uh, this is also a very difficult issue because it, it, it shows a lack of responsibility uh, also with societal actors other than politicians. Uh, you know, the, the certain media create a certain image, and all we do as politicians then fight the image. 
thereby confirming the image of God. Um, and this has been going on uh, on Europe for, for a long time. Um, and we will not solve that by being more aggressive. We will only solve that by delivering. And, you know, the, the, the discussion on the treaty and the referendum, the longer we debate the rules of the game in a situation of mistrust, the more mistrust we will have. Uh, it was so interesting in the Dutch referendum campaign to see that people would look at the treaty, at the, at the constitution, as a Dan Brown novel. There is a hidden message somewhere here. You're trying to sell us out to, I don't know who, to some anonymous bureaucrats in Brussels. It says this, but what you mean is something else. I mean, if you're at that level debating a treaty, you're lost, you're completely lost. Um, and my mistake, because I took the initiative for the referendum, and my mistake was to assume that the referendum would lead to an honest, open, public debate on Europe and on the rules of the game for Europe. I thought we needed this because we had never had a debate on Europe, and I saw the discrepancy between the population and the European project become bigger and bigger. So I thought a referendum might bridge that gap. But if you have a population that is not informed, not even about the basics, you should not have the illusion that you can inform people in six weeks or two months' time. The only thing anti-Europeans need to do is to create what in the American court system people would call reasonable doubt. That's all you need to do, because if there is reasonable doubt, people will vote no, to be sure, to be on the, on the safe side. And this is exactly what happened. Good. Um, I'm going to try and smuggle in um, this one more round of uh, uh, questions and keep them short and, short and sweet. Uh, the gentleman there, the lady at the back said hand up, and then the gentleman behind the gentleman um, there. And I think that'll have to be it, but please keep the question short and then we can get through them all. I should keep my answer short. Just right. Just right. Uh, thank you. Uh, Pierrick Moreau, London Metropolitan University. Um, uh, quite a few times in your speech, you've described the negative attitude that people have towards Europe. Don't you think national governments share responsibility by quite often blaming Brussels for things that they can't or cannot do? And I mean, countless of times we are, we are French politicians, British politicians, and about the Dutch going, oh, we, we would love to, we'd love to do this, but Brussels, this group of Brussels says we can't do this, we can't do that, and blaming, blaming, blaming Brussels for a lot of things that they failed to, they failed to achieve. I don't mm -hmm. know what's uh, what's your perspective on that. Yeah. Yeah. Perhaps we we'll go next to the lady at the back, and then the gentleman. Good evening, my name is Frau Kastelmann. I'm a master's student at LSE. And uh, my question concerns um, your statement that uh, in order to sell the European project um, in terms of uh, employment and social affairs, you have basically to increase skills of people. But I wonder how the European Union and you in your role as Minister for Foreign Affairs want to sell that, um, that statement, uh, this conviction taking into account the fact that there's ever more um, young people that have great CVs that are educated at great universities with, I don't know how much uh, working experience, and that are still struggling, really struggling to find a job. Um, and simply a job which pays so that they can live from, and not like unpaid internships, mm -hmm. which is ever more the case in Italy, in Spain, in France, in Germany, I don't know, but the uh, Netherlands, I think there's not such a problem yet. 
but I've recently read an article in The Economist where that was also the case in Britain. So, yeah, what is your stance on that? My name is uh, Hans Wolters. I'm with the European Council of Foreign Relations, a new uh, pan-European think tank. So I'm a colleague of the gentleman behind me. Um, I lived in the Netherlands, in Belgium, in Switzerland, and now uh, here in Britain. And I must say that so far, but I might still be under cultural shock, I, I see Britain as the least European country. I hope that this will change soon. Maybe it's London. My question to uh, Franz Timmermans is rather on uh, European common foreign policy. Um, Europe and the European countries are very much challenged by Russia and an ever more assertive uh, Russia uh, with Iran and their nuclear option with China, which poses a, a, even a more model kind of, uh, of challenge. How come that still, faced with these challenges, it seems still so difficult for the European countries and the EU to, to, uh, to develop a, a, uh, a clear common foreign policy, whereas it's clear that the individual European countries are getting a, not a good deal in trying to negotiate bilaterally with these uh, ever more important actors? That would be my question. Thank you very much. Um, yes. Pierre, I forgot your last name. Moreau? Moreau. Pierre, Moreau. Um, you are absolutely right. This has been the game for, for, for 20 years now. Um, every success is a national success, every failure is a Brussels failure. Um, and, you know, this is not a game we invented, we politicians uh, on Europe. This is a game politicians have been playing uh, on various levels. Regional politicians will say, always blame the centre and vice versa when things go wrong. Now, in, in national contexts, you have um, a demos, a public opinion, uh, an informed press that can counter these false allegations. Now, on the European scale, there is no demos. The demos is nationally organised. So it is relatively risk-free to blame Europe for everything and to take credit for everything that's gone right on a national level. I think if politicians don't stop that game, we will never create um, uh, support for the European project. So I, I truly believe this is a fundamental point in political behavior. Um, the generation Gaulle Mitterrand, Corbyn, they still had this idea that they could sell to their electorate, these were more pressing times because of the European divide, etc. They could sell to their electorate. This might not be a 100% success me, that's 50%. But it's 50% for him and 100% for Europe. And the idea of a compromise that is not the 100% position of one of the parties, but the 100% position of the total of European cooperation, this idea is lost in Europe. And we need to regain that idea. We need politicians to go home and say, I compromised because we needed that greater good of European cooperation, the greater good of climate change, the greater good of international security. This, which was still common in the 80s, uh, common but happened in the 80s, has been lost since, and we need to rekindle that unless we want this situation to continue.
Ms. Klausterman, I think this is a fundamental point. We don't have a problem in the Netherlands. Our unemployment rate is at 2.7% right now, and especially young people can enter the workforce, albeit on temporary contracts very often. But the temporary contracts are less and less seen as a problem because they know that at the end of the horizon they will have a fixed job. And our problem now is becoming the overheated labor market, which is a different problem. But if I look at certain countries in Europe, France, Italy, perhaps the most astonishing and horrible example of this, you see an insider's economy, an insider's economy. And I must say that trade unions, also in my country, sometimes have the tendency, because they feel insecure in their own role, their role has changed and is changing, to advocate primarily the position of the insiders. And sometimes this is at the expense of those who are outside the region. And I think this is something we need to address. I think the Lisbon Agenda offers a number of possibilities to address this issue. I think that um, Scandinavian countries and the Netherlands can show um, that we can be <coughs> successful in addressing this issue. Um, but, you know, I, 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 I'm, uh, I, I was brought up in part in Italy, and this is a country that is almost a, uh, a second home for me, uh, as are <laughs> simply by my own personal history, more European countries, but specifically Italy, because I, was, I lived there age of 12 to the age of 16, so you can understand it has a, a huge impact. It really pains me to see my friends, and, and I'm 46 now, to see my friends now finally being able to get access to professorial jobs, to management jobs in the industry elsewhere, where they could have been far more uh, productive for their country at 25 we're hurting our economy by doing this. Our most creative years are before we're 30 and faster. Afterwards, we operate on skills, not on ability. I say this with great shame. <laughs> um, then uh, Hans Walters, um, uh, well, you know, it would take hours to answer your question, but let, let, me, let me pick up on the issue of Russia. This is, this is a defining moment for, for uh, European common foreign and security policy. Are we able to come up with a joint strategy on Russia? things are not looking good. There are great divergences within Europe on how to handle Russia, on how to have a relationship with Russia. There are those who think that Russia will go away and that you can neglect it and you can vilify Russia all the time. There are those who think that you cannot have any criticism of Russia in fear of uh, 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 shunning them away from your interests. I think both positions are essentially fundamentally wrong. I have some experience, as Hans knows very well, with Russia. I've, I've worked and lived there and had the privilege of, of, of working with many people there. Um, Russia is a great power, is not a country in transition. This is another fallacy in our thinking, to always see Russia as a country in transition. It is not. It is Russia. It will always be Russia. What we need to do is to understand that we are on a common continent and that we have uh, common destinies. Now, this means that you have to be, you have to treat Russia with the respect it deserves. Sometimes we don't do that, but we also have to treat, and part of the respect is to be firm when Russia, in our eyes, misbehaves or diverges from 
general norms we've accepted with the Russians. Now, European politicians have done exactly the opposite. Been rude to Russia in form and be soft, been soft to Russia in content. Now then you get twice contempt out of Moscow. They, they have contempt for, for the, your lack of manners and they have contempt for your lack of strength. Uh, we need to rethink that approach. We need to be firm on content, but we need to respect Russia for the great nation it is. And we need to establish a long-term, mutual, uh, beneficial relationship in the energy field. It is wrong to think that we are the demanding, asking party, that we are the weak party. That is totally wrong. That is a wrong analysis. We both need this cooperation because the Russians need it at least as much as we do if you look at the level of investment, which is far too low, to, to uh, ensure uh, the level of production on the basis of the contracts already uh, signed. Um, I focused my answer on Russia because I think um, the question whether the EU is able to define a common position on Russia is fundamental. And it is not right to blame the Russians for playing off one European country against the other. I'm sure that anyone in Whitehall, anyone in the Netherlands, if they were in the same position and they saw division in Europe, they would use that division to their benefit. That is in the nature of international relations. That is in the nature of promotion of national interests. It's not something you can blame the Russians for. It is our own fault. Well, um, sadly, I have to draw things to a close there. Um, you've given us a marvellous talk and, uh, and then uh, engaged us in a conversation, in a rich and thoughtful conversation, rather than um, lectured or talked at us from the platform, as it were. And um, uh, I think that's, uh, uh, that's uh, made um, the whole event even more enjoyable and personally engaging. And um, thank you very, very much indeed. Can I, can I end the... Thank you.